I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. Looks like all eyes on the Supreme Court of the United States as they hear arguments against uh, the White House's plan to forgive student loan debt. We are going to be taking you there live. We understand the arguments are still going on um, in just a moment. For now, though, Taylor Morgan in this morning for Dave Noriega. Taylor is a co-host of KSL at Night. You're also a lobbyist on Capitol Hill, which will be very, very helpful today because we know that the clock is ticking on the 2023 session. It ends Friday, right? It it ends at 11.59 p.m. on Friday night. Not that I'm counting down the minutes, Debbie. In, In 45 minutes, I'm looking forward to your deep dive, giving us a peek behind the curtain uh, for the budget, for this year's budget, you have been highlighting uh, the the highlights and what I'll call the lowlights of the budget, which include uh, things I didn't know were stuffed in there, Taylor. Oh, Debbie, this budget is, it's big. There's a lot of money and there's a lot of interesting line items we will get into. Okay. Brewing Utah weather. Special coverage on KSL News Radio. We want to start with the weather today because we got uh, just pretty much slammed in some parts of the state overnight. Not so much along the Wasatch Front. Although, Taylor, you said your commute in this morning at about 7 a.m. was wild down on the south end of I-15. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but when drivers come around the bend there uh, from Utah County making their way into Salt Lake County, things get a little bit intense there on I-15, and it always tends to bottleneck. Right where I get on the freeway there in Draper. It was also intense overnight in Ogden. Listen to this. That is... What is that? It's, it's thunder snow. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa is right. Thunder snow. Yeah, you saw the images of it. It was like a big smack of lightning in yeah. the middle of a snowstorm. How does that happen? I've never heard of thunder snow before. We'll bring in uh, KSL meteorologist Matt Johnson in just a moment. Let's get out to the newsroom. Adam Small, uh, you've been covering the uh, the thunder snow for us. Describe the videos that we've been getting uh, through email here at Broadcast House from some of our TV viewers and radio listeners. Yeah, Debbie, the video, I think the one you were just playing was from uh, Christine Martinez, the one I've been uh, referring to this morning as well. She sent us these videos and just wakes up around 2 a.m. to the sound of thunder at her house in Ogden and just takes a video and you can audibly hear thunder. I believe at one point you can actually see lightning 
it's super rare, but I mean, we got multiple tips and reports about this, this meteorological phenomena happening up in uh, about Roy and that Ogden area. Um, but we do know going into the next portion of weather that comes in tonight, I spoke with a meteorologist in the National Weather Service who said that we're probably not going to see any more of that tonight. It, it's pretty rare. I've never seen it in person myself. <laughs> Yeah, Adam Small, KSL News Radio. Thank you. Let's get over to Matt Johnson, KSL meteorologist, who's in studio with us. Uh, what is this thunder snow we speak of, or <laughs> right. snow thunder? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an amazing phenomenon. It's one of my favorites in meteorology. And basically, what you're what you're doing is you're getting grapple and you're getting snowflakes passing each other up in the cloud, and that creates static electricity. The difference okay. in electricity charges between the cloud and the ground causes a lightning strike. I saw you uh, reported and uh, tweeted yesterday that we are in for a wild weather pattern well into March. Yeah, so there's there's uh, a lot of large-scale systems that are here on planet Earth. One of them is La Nina, El Nino, that we know. Now, there's another one called Madden-Julian Oscillation, or MJO. (laughs) Right. And basically, all you need to know about this is that it's basically a large area um, of rising air and inclement weather, and it circulates the globe every 30 to 60 days. It just so happens it's going to be entering the Pacific Basin. Uh, That typically influences our weather here in the West and can help bring wet weather. And it's looking like that's trying to set up as we move uh, through March. So what does that mean for snowfall? Like I'm a skier. I should be up Little Cottonwood Canyon right now, but I'm here in studio <laughs> with Debbie. What does this mean for snowfall for the for the coming months? Well, first off, you did the right thing coming in. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It, well, and the canyon's actually not open yet, so I don't feel <laughs> oh, too bad right, about it yet. Um, but to answer your question, so this is going to be – this type of scenario would bring a – we're in a cold, wet pattern. This would bring a warm, wet pattern. So that would right. this would be more of a valley, rain, mountain, snow scenario bringing plenty of snow. All right, Matt Johnson, KSL meteorologist. Uh, thank for thank you so much for the heads up and the education on what is thunder snow, snow thunder. We appreciate it. All right, uh, let's get out to Mayor Monica Zoltansky. Uh, she's the mayor of Sandy City because I was hearing reports this morning on Utah's Morning News, Mayor, that it seems like your city is out of money, at least for road salt. Well, good morning, Debbie and Taylor. So nice of you to have me on. We have just been walloped with snow in Sandy this year, and we've used our entire salt budget of $126,000 this year already. And, you know, the season is not done yet. So far, we've spent uh, just over $240,000 just on salt, and we're not done yet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm going back to my city council to ask that they open the city pocketbook for more salt so that we can keep up with the snow load and uh, service our residents in a way that they can get out of their neighborhoods, get out of their, get on the roads and get to work. And, and keep the, the roads from icing up. That salt is so critical uh, in your efforts to keep the, the roads plowed. Are you also over budget for overtime for plow drivers, Mayor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not just the salt. It's the uh, staffing, the personnel. Our, our plow drivers are incredible. We have a team of 21 plow drivers that go around the city on the roads and then not to mention our parks crew that shovel the walks and clear the trailheads in our parks and around our city facilities so it's a huge budget drain on us this year just to keep up with the extreme weather but that's what we've got to do as a city we have to plan for the extremes and 
filled out and make sure that we have the systems and the personnel in place to respond when necessary. Yeah, Mayor, and I understand that uh, a facility that uh, the city used to store snowplows experienced some damage or or burned down a few years ago, and that's impacting your ability to respond. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's a great question. We had a big fire in our public works facility in 2017, and we've built our administrative offices. But uh, the next phase is to rebuild the garage where the mechanics work. But while we're doing that, building our mechanics' uh, new garage, they maintain our fleet of over 700 vehicles in the city. We will be without outside storage or uh, covered storage for our snow plows for a year. And so we're looking at options that are going to be a temporary fix. But really, we need, as a city, to fund our long-term uh, proper storage of our salt trucks. When those salt trucks are loaded up, those 10-wheel dump trucks, loaded up with 30 tons of salt and they need to be ready to go when the call comes in and so that's why they need to be stored indoors and we're already in a really tight spot and we'll be without covered storage as we go through our next phase of building out our uh, facilities garage yeah well sandy mayor monica zoltansky thank you so much uh, for joining yeah thanks mayor Uh, i'm sure she was glad to hear ksl meteorologist matt johnson say we're in for a wet but warmer pattern which means Perhaps less salt, maybe less salt, maybe cities like Sandy and Draper, where you live, which got slammed by this last snowstorm. How much did you end up getting up at your house? We had about 20 inches overnight, uh, and that was in the middle of the street out in front of my house. Uh, Spent a lot of time with Mm -hmm. my neighbors digging ourselves out. Uh, It took a, a day or two for the plows to get around. Lot of snow, Debbie, and it's still coming. Well, and I'm sure that Sandy City isn't alone in its, you know, money crunch when it comes to the snow plowing and the salt. We'll continue to track developments on that story, but the promise that roads will continue to be plowed. Um, certainly for traffic safety. Straight ahead, let's take you live to the United States Supreme Court. Do we know if arguments are still, oral arguments are still happening? I'm getting the head nod yes from our producer, Caitlin, who's in the control room. So we're going we're gonna to dip in live in just a matter of moments. Now, you had a student loan, and this is what is being argued in front of the Supreme Court right now, is whether President Biden's student loan forgiveness program is legal. Yeah. And you had one, but you paid it off. I did. I And I was grateful to have the opportunity to take out those student loans because they made the difference in being able to take advantage of some key opportunities in college that led to my career and also to completing graduate school. So I was grateful to have those loans and I just paid them off. <laughs> I don't know. We'll get into this. Yeah, Taylor, I want to ask you, Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega in just a moment. Like, Would you have taken the deal from the White House to forgive those student loans? Let's get into that discussion in three. Dave and Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. And we're going to take you live uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States, which is hearing oral arguments. They started a couple of hours ago um, about President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. My understanding is, Taylor, that they're still hearing oral arguments. I just poked my head in the control room. Um, It's audio only for our feed, so we don't know who's speaking when we uh, uh, toss over to it in just a moment. But you had a student loan, and you paid it off. So this would not have impacted you. No. The crux of this argument is that President Biden doesn't have 
the legal authority to do this, right? Yeah. So this was an executive order. And as we have seen so many times, uh, presidents often uh, use executive orders to uh, accomplish political campaign goals that often don't align with uh, Congress. What Congress wants, right. And and so one has to wonder if there was broad support, even within the Democratic Party, why wasn't it a Democratic Congress that uh, that passed student loan forgiveness? Because he had the opportunity last session, right? Yeah, he had a Democratic Congress, both chambers. And he missed that opportunity, or perhaps he didn't have the full support or maybe he wanted all the credit. He wants all the credit. So now what ends up happening is that when he announces this program to forgive student loan debt up to $10,000 if you didn't qualify for a Pell Grant, up to $20,000 if you did, uh, when it was challenged in court, which it was almost immediately by numerous states and by particularly today two plaintiffs, um, and we'll get into what their case is and what they're arguing in just a moment. Um, what he ended up doing is giving false hope to some 40 million Americans, not you, because you just paid off your student loan. Right. Yeah. But false hope to these folks who then were put in a, a limbo. And all the deadlines and all of the applicants. It was not an easy, straightforward thing to apply for this forgiveness. And even after all of the applications, the time, Mm. Debbie, you had to go back. If you were going to apply for a public service forgiveness, you had to go back to your employer uh, that you worked for uh, a decade ago and get them to sign, physically sign your application form before you could submit it. And all of this had to be done uh, by a quick deadline and even after all that, there's still no guarantee that you'll get any kind of forgiveness. So what you're saying is folks got on the hamster wheel and ran in circles oh, yeah, to get all this stuff done, paperwork, get all paperwork. of the paperwork filed on the website, the federal website that was set up for this, and right. then it was like, eh. And then there's no guarantee you'll get anything for it. I want to take us live right now to the Supreme Court of the United States where they're hearing oral arguments in President Biden's student loan forgiveness debt, the lawsuit uh, against his program independent body with um, uh, uh, financial distance from the state and sue-and-be-sued authority. So why isn't Mohila responsible for deciding whether to bring this suit? Uh, we don't deny that Mohila has, could file a suit like that, but the state's interest is directly implicated here, so it is allowed to assert the interest it has I in think we're Mohila gonna... directly. We're going to have a hard time inserting ourselves in the middle of what that line of questioning was all about and why. But I can tell you that uh, I'm just looking at this Associated Press story, and I thought they did a really good job boiling this down. Here's here's what these cases are about uh, in a nutshell. Uh, There is a, a woman who was ineligible for debt relief because her loans are commercially held. So when President Biden announced wiping away or forgiving up to $20,000 in student loan debt, she found herself ineligible because of where her loan was taken out or how she obtained her loan. And then the other has to do with uh, a gentleman who was eligible for just $10,000 in debt relief, not the full $20,000, because he never received that Pell Grant. 
Um, and they both both of these parties feel as though the Biden administration, President Biden, did not go through the proper process um, getting this plan in place. And they have other arguments as well. But to your point, it was by executive order. Yeah. And these um, lawsuits disagree with the process that was used. Yeah. And I think the reality is, is that President Biden did not have support within his own party for this uh, forgiveness plan. I think part of it was uh, many in his party felt like it didn't go far enough, right? That it wasn't enough forgiveness. And then, of course, other elements felt like it, it was too much. And so uh, I think anytime you rush a process and uh, you issue an order without having to bring at least a, a majority of Congress to the table on something so significant, then you are shortcutting uh, a, a very complicated, very difficult conversation. And you're going to end up in, in the courts. Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega, who's just taking uh, a day off. And uh, we're talking right now about the arguments, the oral arguments before the Supreme Court of the United States about uh, President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. It is in limbo. Some 40 million Americans are also in limbo because they were told their student loans would be forgiven when the president made that announcement months and months ago. And then the lawsuits started piling on. Courts put the program on pause. And here we are today. And we will not have an immediate decision today. The yeah. Supreme Court is known for taking its time, although they have said um, I think they're going to ex- expedite this because they know so many Americans are just waiting for a decision. Uh, I want to ask you this. Can you afford right now to go to college without taking out a student loan? So let me give you the price tag of what I'm seeing online for tuition. And I'll just give you a few colleges around Utah. This isn't even out-of-state tuition. This is in-state. Yeah, $9,300 a year for the University of Utah. Plus, on top of that, living expenses. If you live on campus, they estimate about eleven grand a year, 15000 if you live off campus. And let me fly us up to Logan, where Utah State University is. It's about the same price, about $9,200 a year for tuition. And this doesn't include what I call those mystery fees that are tacked on, things like the athletic fee, even though you're not an athlete, you pay $82 <laughs> a year yep. for that or a semester for that. I can't even remember what I was paying for for my daughter. Um, fine arts fee, $17.50. It doesn't sound like a lot, but then you add that to all of the other fees, like the building fee of $92, and suddenly you're extra 1000 or $1,200 a year. So let's talk from your own perspective. As a dad, Taylor, do you worry that you're going to be able to afford to send your kids or your kids are going to be able to afford to pay for college without taking out a student loan like what you did? Yeah. So I my experience was I worked nearly full-time for most of my college career to, to pay my way through college. And it wasn't just the tuition and fees. Uh, it was my living expenses. I had a car, car insurance, uh, all of the things and the trappings of life. Uh, I, by working my way through college, I actually, Debbie, I don't think I had the full college experience and I regret some of that. What I did do because you're so busy working. I was focused on working to pay my way through college. And that and there, that's good. And so you couldn't do the internships, for example. That's or right. Or you couldn't join the And so I quit my clubs. job, took out a student loan, and then I did internships. I did internships at the okay. Utah legislature in Washington, D.C. I then was able to pursue the opportunities that made my career. And so when I look at the cost of college – 
I'm not just seeing the basics of tuition and room and board. I'm looking at the cost of the experiences that make the difference in, in someone's career. College is just a starting point, right? It is a lot more expensive than tuition and room and board. Okay. I I want to continue this conversation with you in the 10 o'clock hour because I do want to dive into more of what your expectations are for your own kids yeah. who are not quite college ready. I, I And I know what we did as parents, and I don't know if we did it right or wrong or we landed somewhere in the middle of it, but I can just speak to uh, my experience as a mom who just made the last tuition <laughs> payment. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, um, probably ever. Are you sure about that? What guarantees know. do you have, Debbie? Uh, but that's going to happen in the 10 o'clock hour. We're also going to have a professor, uh, a constitutional law professor, ironically, from the University of Utah, ah. calling the show to tell us what the odds are that President Biden will, let's say, lose this student loan forgiveness battle at the Supreme Court. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dijanovic. So there's a change in the works uh, to Utah's gun laws. And I'm and this one made me so curious that I, I texted the representative, the sponsor of the legislation, uh, Representative Phil Lyman this morning, asked him to join the show. He agreed and he's on the line right now. But I, I do want to get a little housekeeping out of the way with Taylor Morgan, who's in today for Dave Noriega. Uh, Taylor is not only an awesome co-host for KSL at oh, Night, thanks, which is our it's it's just a really great show yeah, and it fun. airs from seven to nine weeknights right here on KSL News Radio. We feel so lucky to have you and our other hosts on that show because of your depth of experience, not only back in Congress, you worked for the Foreign Affairs Committee? Yeah, House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Wow. I mean, that's impressive enough. And now you are a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. Yes. Yes, I'm a lobbyist. And uh, I, look, Representative Phil Lyman is one of the best, and mostly Debbie (laughs) Uh, housekeeping here. Number one is a lobbyist. I'm not connected or involved with this legislation. But more importantly, Debbie, I, I want to make sure you're nice to Representative <laughs> Lyman. Okay, he's one of our best and brightest. So please be nice. Respect the honorable representative. So, so this legislation, from my just uh, just listening to it this morning on Utah's Morning News, piqued my interest because it it seems as though it would allow convicted sex offenders to own guns after after three years. I I, I want to get more details from him, uh, but this is what I heard this morning on my drive-in on Utah's Morning News. People that have no inclination towards violence, no history of violence, uh, especially gun violence. Um, we, we did add a, in, in one of the amendments, add on if they're repeat offenders, they're not eligible for this. So someone who, who commits felonies while they're on probation, they're just not even eligible for this. So hopefully we've addressed the issue. We're not trying to put guns in the hands of people who could be inclined to use them violently. I, I'm interested by this legislation. I think here in Utah, uh, I think of voting as a constitutional right. And if you are a convicted felon and mm. if you're currently incarcerated, you're not eligible to vote. But uh, if you're no longer incarcerated and you have served your time and satisfied uh, the orders of the court, you are then eligible again to vote. I, I, owning a gun could be seen as being very similar. Representative Phil Lyman, good morning. Good morning. 
Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor, for standing up for me here. <laughs> hey, that's any time, Representative. <laughs> Thank you. So, so, so walk, walk us through, Representative, uh, your, your legislation, your proposal. What offenders would be eligible to um, get a gun um, after they had this three-year waiting period? So the state already has in code um, <clears throat> a division between violent and nonviolent. And there, there are thousands of felonies that can be committed, and the states categorize those. And uh, so, so trying to, you know, be very specific is, is difficult in a bill. So we just say nonviolent offender. So if, if a person is classified as a nonviolent offender, they haven't repeated, they've done their time, they've done their probation, and another three years has passed, then the uh, – Restrict, restriction of rights would be lifted automatically. So they couldn't have committed, for example, a robbery in their past or um, um, some sort of a weapon, um, a, a sexual exactly. assault. A sexual assault would be would be violent. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, and they would not qualify under your proposal? No, they would not. And in fact, their, their restriction is a lifetime ex- restriction. Uh, they can go for an expungement, um, but that's their only avenue, and that would still remain their only avenue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think this is interesting, and I appreciate the fact that look, driver's license is a privilege, not a right. Uh, whether you like it or not, agree or disagree, uh, the right to own a gun is a constitutionally protected right. And, and so, I, I think this is uh, certainly an important conversation, Representative Lyman. What is the next step? Uh, for this bill? I know we're in the last week here. I know we're in the last day of committees. What is next? So it's, it's in committee this afternoon. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll present there. And then if it passes that committee, then it'll be to the Senate floor. And if it passes the Senate floor, then he'll be on to the governor for signature. Um, but it's had broad support. And the other thing that was, was unexpected on this was the, was the huge fiscal note, a positive fiscal note, and the savings to the state um, initially, it was ongoing of $31 million. We haven't redone the fiscal note to take into account some of the changes we've made, so it might be slightly less than that, but $30 a year that the state spends um, currently that they wouldn't be spending in the future, which which this isn't a fiscal question, but it but that is a nice cherry on top. Yeah. It's kind of an incentive to get it passed. So just if you can briefly explain to me um, – how how you come upon that savings? Is it because you don't have to process requests, or or, or, or how how do you how do you get to that number of of, of millions of dollars in savings if this legislation uh, gets through the process? That's a great question, Debbie. And I asked the same question to the fiscal analyst. You know, how in the world can that? How is that possible? And and he broke it down. Said the uh, um, probation, uh, people would be on probation for three years, essentially, instead of 10 years uh, in, in terms of their gun rights. Uh, that saves some money. Instead of going through a process to get those lifted, which is really expensive, um, it would happen automatically. That's probably the biggest savings. Um, well, maybe the biggest savings is, is those people who are um, found possessing guns after their, you know, after their uh, three years that would now not be criminalized for it uh, and would not be in, incarcerated for it. So he said it would equate to about 276 uh, people not in jail that would otherwise have been you know, potentially in jail or at least gone through the system and, and the prosecution. So they do spend a lot of money 
on this issue. Okay. And then what happens, Representative Lyman, just the final question, we'll let you get back to your job up there on the Hill. Uh, What happens if one of these individuals who's granted the opportunity to have a gun again reoffends? Do they automatically lose that or do they have a chance to uh, work their way through the process if they are caught offending another, for example, they go and they, they, they burglarize a home or something like that. Yeah. They, 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 well, burglary would be a violent offense. Um, shoplifting would be a nonviolent. So let's say they're caught shoplifting. Okay. Um, they would lose all of their rights to, to this provision now and in the future, because now they would be, they would have uh, multiple felonies if it was, if it was considered a felony. Okay. Yeah. Well, Representative Lyman, we will watch this bill closely. Yeah. And caught my eye. Thank you so much for walking us through it this morning. Yeah. Um, and you said, yeah, no, it's 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 a good bill. I appreciate the the, the person that brought it forward to me, and um, I think it's I think it's a logical, you know, kind of civil liberties bill. I like it a lot. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, good luck in the last few days of the legislative session. And Taylor, you were pointing out just moments ago that. Is this the last day for committees to hear legislation? It is. Yeah, today's the last day of committees, and uh, there will be a lot of bills in committee today. It's going to be a busy, long day. Okay, so rewind, because I cannot remember how this works. It's been so long since I covered Capitol Hill as a news reporter. It's the 90s. Um, Once committees disband for the rest of the legislative session and a bill has not been heard by that committee passed out of committee. Is that bill dead in the water? Well, we can always suspend the rules, Debbie. (laughs) So that's a no. Never let process uh, get in the way uh, of uh, an important issue. right? All right. Okay. So straight ahead. So just because a bill isn't out of committee today does not mean it doesn't have an opportunity to make its way out if the rules are suspended. Yes and and no. I do remember that now. I'm flashback. I remember when they were suspending rules in the 11th hour um, just before they would break away from the twenty or the this the general session, and it was they were suspending rules and and getting together real quick. Anything, to, yeah, anything can happen okay. this week. Debbie. It's going to be an actually. A, I love the last week of the legislative session. <laughs> I know that we will be broadcasting live from Capitol Hill on Friday from one until seven o'clock at night. Um, and of course, our KSL News Radio, Lindsay Ertz, our political reporter on the Hill, she will be um, losing a lot of sleep <laughs> for the next several days. <laughs> Even more next than several. she already has. So yeah. straight ahead, you're going to give us a peek behind the curtain of the uh, of the states or the proposed twenty eight billion dollar budget, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so I you gave me a, a little bit of a taste. You said. For example, Deb, you said this before as we were in show prep, we're buying a state plane. Well, we need – we have a state airplane, okay. Debbie. This isn't a junket, right? This is a real need. Mm. Uh, the current state plane is, is old. It's got a lot of miles on it, and we need a new state plane. Okay. So we're going to spend $7 million to buy you one. You gave it away. Oh, well, You gave it away. There's okay. a lot more <laughs> okay. in here to talk Just about. Just like that. Straight- Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dijanovic. Well, Taylor Morgan, who is a lobbyist on Utah's Capitol Hill, also a host of KSL at Night, um, so glad you're in for Dave today um, as we take a look at the legislative budget proposal and take a deep dive into it. Uh, you're going to give us a peek 
behind the curtain. And, and let me just put it this way, friends: um, if if the if the packet of paperwork that Taylor is holding uh, in his left hand right now, <laughs> which is the legislative budget proposal, if it were a restaurant menu. I would say it is the equivalent of a cheesecake factory menu, the kind of the menu that never ends, that has a smattering of just about everything on it. Mm, and and yep. you are, you're going to give us very specific numbers. For example, you just gave away how much <laughs> has been budgeted or proposed because the budget really probably won't be passed until Friday and approved, right, by the legislature. Right. But okay. this, yeah, this list is the kind of official final approved list. From, from the Executive Appropriations Committee. So technically, yes, not not 100% but done, but it's done. It's pretty much a done yeah. deal. Okay. Yeah. So I want you to go over, first of all, and I want you to spend a little less time on this and more time on the specifics. But in general, when you look over that Cheesecake Factory menu of a budget, um, who are the winners and who are the losers in terms of services? Yeah. So I would say that transportation infrastructure, water conservation, and environment, including outdoor recreation, uh, are the big winners, along with Utahns in the form of tax cuts. Uh, Education did well, uh, but really I would say social services uh, are probably stand out as the loser in this budget. So this would be like money for mental health therapy and monies for services, um, for, for health services. Uh, how much total did mental, or excuse me, did social services? Do you have a number? About on forty-two that? million in one-time money, Ooh. compared. Well, yeah, like, we're going to get into some of these numbers, okay. and, and But I will say that we expected this session. Uh, lawmakers before the session started, they were talking about generational investments in yeah. infrastructure, in long-term projects, and definitely that is reflected in this budget. But, but look- you look at the $42 million that is being set aside for social services, and I'll just take – and then I'm going to give this yeah. microphone over to you, Taylor, because I really want you to get into the into the details about how much is being spent and where. But you look at the $42 million on social services, and I can see why you feel like – that that there that is the category that is the the loser in terms of the money um, in um, in this legislative session. If you look at the number that number compared to the four hundred million dollars in tax relief, four hundred million dollars in tax relief relief as lawmakers have decided to lower the income tax rate just ever so slightly, but it is enough that it's going to be four hundred million it's all gonna add up to four hundred million dollars. Yeah, I can see where you're coming up with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. all relative, right? Okay. Yeah. So drum roll please. Brrr, Dave's not here to do our drum roll. I'll do the <laughs> drum roll for it. So give us the give us the details that really stood out to you uh as t- in terms of where money is being spent. Okay. Yeah. And I want to be clear that I'm I'm pointing out some interesting perhaps quirky funding items. I'm not necessarily being critical of all of these. Okay. I just think it's fun and interesting. Yeah, uh, stuff we never see. So, we don't, yeah, we don't see that. So this is your job to tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, so we are committed to getting the Olympics back here in Salt Lake City. Okay. I will tell How you so? that. We're putting $40 million into refurbishing Olympics uh, venues. Uh, we're also building a new USA climbing facility uh, to the tune of $15 million. Uh, we are really investing in the uh, Department of 
alcohol beverage control. We're building a warehouse and a lot more stores. And uh, how much money is going to? $140 million in wow. one-time money wow. is going to I, expand uh, liquor stores. Liquor stores and, and maybe hire people to staff them? Because yep. I know they've had staffing issues. I'm sure that's part of the, part of that funding okay. as well. Uh, the Loa Fish Hatchery. Is uh, we're spending fifty six million dollars. I know I've been uh, through there. Um, it's Loa is Loa's it, really I, pretty. I, yeah, I cannot remember off the top of my head where Loa is. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Loa. Down the, I believe it's not far from Fish <laughs> I know, Lake. Actually, I know it's spelled L O A. That's right. How's that? That's right. <laughs> it's not L O W A. Okay. That's right. What so else you got? We got a fish hatchery coming. Like I said, Olympics money. Transportation is a big, big winner, including what we're calling active transportation. Oh. That means. A statewide trail network is going to be getting forty-five million dollars. So something we can run on and walk on. That's right. Okay. Uh, two hundred million dollars in light rail expansion. Okay, I think there'd be an argument there that we need more of that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, optional full-day kindergarten, Debbie. Twenty-five million dollars in ongoing annual money committed in this budget. And I saw that that passed out of committee, so it does seem to have the legs to get through the It does, and and the the money being in this budget on an ongoing basis is a is a clear signal that there is support. And for it would that. be optional, like you said, it wouldn't yeah. be, but it's it's several millions of dollars. Yes. Okay. What uh, else you got? Well, one hundred and fifty million dollars, Debbie, for Cottonwood Canyons transportation. So that would be a, a, an indication for me that lawmakers are looking to help fund a gondola. Uh, well, which has been very controversial. Yeah, Some we don't know for buses. certain, but we do know that UDOT has recommended the gondola and that uh, there is a need to do something in the Cottonwood Canyons and $150 million set aside in this budget is significant in terms of the groundwork for some significant project. Give us one more because I'm being told by our producers we've got some breaking news we got to cut to. Do you have one more budget item while we get ready for breaking news here? $800 million for transportation enhancements, Debbie. This is a $2.8 billion budget for transportation. We got breaking news. Uh, Peter Johnston, uh, KSL News Radio, standing by live for us. Um, I, I'm getting word, Peter, here at Broadcast House that a, that a car has potentially crashed it into a restaurant. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. I'm over here on 23rd East and 39th South, right by Olympus High. A woman was trying to park at a local subway, flipped and slammed headfirst into the into the right side of the building. So it broke the window. It like launched a table across the room. Glasses everywhere. Her car is pretty wrecked. But uh, luckily, no one was there. And guess what? They're still going to be serving footlongs the rest of the day. <laughs> So nobody was in the restaurant. It's just too early for it to open, Peter. Do you know? Uh, nah, it was open, but it was there was one employee and he was in the back. Oh, thank goodness! So nobody heard. Yeah. And how's the how's the the driver of that car? Do we know? Uh, I didn't get the chance to talk to her. I saw her getting in the back of a police car, and she's gone now. Okay. Uh, her car is currently on the back of a tow truck, so wow. not a great day. But no, no, nobody hurt uh, that you're aware of at the restaurant itself. And thank goodness, even though it was open, uh, nobody was there ordering footlongs. But oh, you yeah. said you said that they're just so committed to uh, serve up footlongs today. They're going to remain open. Yeah, 100%. It's kind okay. of funny, but uh, the, the, the AC is going to suck. It's going to be like 30 degrees inside, but you'll get your cookies and put ones over here. <laughs> All right. Peter Johnston of KSL News Radio, live on the scene for us, uh, 2300 East and 3900 South, where a car had slammed into 
a Subway restaurant. Uh, but it appears at this point, anyways, uh, nobody. Forgiving college debt. Special coverage on KSL News Radio. Yeah, in studio here at Broadcast House, uh, sitting with Taylor Morgan today, who is a co-host of KSL at Night, uh, watching the monitors, the national news media staged outside of the Supreme Court of the United States um, because there are there were arguments this morning. I'm not clear if those arguments are still going on regarding uh, President Biden's student loan uh, forgiveness program, but they've started at eight o'clock our time. They're supposed to go two hours and then everybody's like, hey, they're going to go longer than that. Um, but protests going on at the at the courthouse outside as well, Taylor. And I, this this program this has fascinated me for many reasons. One reason being is that I'm not sure that folks who felt like they were going to have their debt forgiven how they cannot be angry at the Biden administration yeah. right now yeah. for leaving them in limbo with the announcement. And here we are months later, we still don't have any loans forgiven. Well, and I think they should be angry at the Biden administration. I, I don't want to be too critical of President Biden. I, as a Republican, I'll admit I voted for him. But I think the problem is here he tried to score political points by doing this as an executive order rather then fighting through the process of congressional action on this. And let's compare the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right? That was passed by Congress, and it wasn't easy. But it has been – it is upheld, been upheld by the courts. It has stood the test of time, uh, I believe, because, because it was Congress. passed and fought. It went through the process. And this executive order, at least in my opinion, I see it as a shortcut – to score political points, and I don't believe it will it will hold up. Well, politically, in my view, it was very odd timing. Um, I mean, we were still years. I mean, maybe just a little bit, uh, a few months in, in front of the midterms. Uh, still, they were yeah. years out from a presidential election year. A week and, after I paid off my last student and, loan, by the way. Speaking of odd timing, yeah. <laughs> right? That was fun. So you didn't I mean, look, I wouldn't have qualified <laughs> maybe or ultimately we may not. No one may get forgiveness. Anyway, I'm just this saying how Deb, life that works. There was, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that was a fun I, moment. I yeah. just paid off my student loan debt. And now the president makes this. Now that was in your head. Yeah. Hashtag. Thanks, Biden. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, Greg scored as KSL legal analyst. That's hilarious. First of all. <laughs> This is the kind of stuff that would happen to me, so I'm glad to know that I'm in I'm in good company with your bad luck, Taylor. True, true story, Debbie. I actually made that payment on my phone upstairs during a KSL at night recording, and to, like, I prove a point uh, to prove a point in front of Carlos, our producer, and Mara Carabello, my co-host. I literally hit the last payment, and I said, "Watch this. I'm going to make this payment." Next week, they're going to announce loan forgiveness. And true story, it happened. <laughs> Greg scored as KSL legal analyst, also quite often a host of KSL at night. I, I, would, I would say meet Taylor Morgan, but I know I know the two of you know each other. Hi, Greg. It's Greg. We're glad, hey, to, we're glad to have you joining us so early uh, in the day. Uh, so walk us through uh, kind of the nuts and bolts. So get, get us just down to the Reader's Digest version of what – it's actually, I think, two cases – uh, that the court is hearing today. That's correct. There were actually six lawsuits filed by uh, six different states. Two have worked their way up to the Supreme Court, and they're all essentially the same thing, which is uh, these loan forgiveness 
agencies that are that are either sponsored through or working through the state have claimed that the Biden administration exceeded its authority under what they what the Biden administration used as the as the Heroes Act uh, to for to instigate this program and. The, the states have alleged, well, wait a minute, they've made, basically made the same argument that Taylor just made, which is Congress should have done this or the administration should have at least run it up the flagpole and at least tried to get it through Congress before they went ahead and made this really broad uh, brush uh, excuse of, of millions and millions of dollars of student loans. Right. I mean, the number of people and the amount of money that's involved here is just is 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 huge yeah it's like 40 million americans i think at one point we put the figure for utahns at about three hundred thousand, and it would be like three hundred thousand and one, except for taylor over here <laughs> well we're talking 400 billion dollars that is the cost to taxpayers to the rest of us that aren't benefiting from this Greg, I I wonder, too, if some of this argument will go to, and I unfortunately didn't get a chance to listen to as much of it as I would have liked to have. Uh, I wonder if it's also going to go to just the unfairness of it, that some people qualify uh, because of a certain income threshold of 125,000, 250 if you're married, but then you don't if you make like 25,000, 125,000 and $100 or something like that. There's there's got to be some of that layered in to these states arguments. Uh, am I am I off base on that? No, you're exactly right. And in fact, I think even that the liberals on the court are concerned about how much money is involved here. The conservatives if, if you listen to some of the arguments that are going on today, have been concerned about the the uh, authority of the Biden administration to do this and the way they went about it. But even the liberals are like, wait a minute, this is, as Taylor indicated, we're talking about billions of dollars and, and potentially millions of borrowers who are affected by this. And to just kind of come in with this random uh, $125,000 individual can get up to $20,000 of excuse yeah. of their yeah. student loans. And it's just, uh, I mean, uh, I know the Biden administration probably had the best of intentions here, but the way the way they went about it, uh, I think, from all accounts, is is probably not going to be held up by the Supreme Court here. Yeah, yeah, I, I I know, Greg. My experience with student loans, I I took out my student loans in the early two thousands uh, in order to do some internships and pursue graduate school, and I remember going through. The hours of financial literacy training, the disclosures, the paperwork, mm. it, there, there was no lack of clarity on what I should expect as a ba- borrow and into. what I was getting myself into. And I – look, the cost of higher education is a separate conversation that we need to have, yeah. and it's out of control. But these borrowers, they knew exactly what they were doing. And look, I guess I'm an old man now, and I'm in my 40s, and I just want to say pay your bills. Pay your bills. Greg, when do you think we'll have a decision from the Supreme Court? You know, I think that there there were so many really important uh, arguments that are going on at the Supreme Court right now on so many issues, mm-hmm. uh, in, including, uh, you know, student loan forgiveness, um, you know, uh, the the fact that certain educators, certain colleges have to use uh, criteria to allow students into their college and other things. 
we're probably looking at either June, July, or August wow. before an opinion comes out wow. on this. Okay. So summer. Uh, Greg Scordis, KSL legal analyst and also a host of KSL at Night. Thanks for jumping on the line with Taylor and I. Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega. Uh, and, and let's get into the conversation and get calls, Taylor, straight ahead um, regarding – I see. I just don't feel like unless you have the support of your parents or a family member – Yeah. Going to college is financially within reach. A U of U, $9,300 a year for tuition. You multiply that out by four years, or in your case, you were said you were on the six-year plan. Because I was working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it just it won't. And I'm not know, a doctor. Not be, right, yeah. Um, but I think just my experience in paying for my daughter's uh, last few years up at the University of Utah, that's probably for the 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 less com- complex type of degrees because we just paid I think two classes in a lab. Uh, her father and I just paid about forty five hundred dollars for two classes in mm. the lab in her final semester. That's just yeah a final semester tuition tuition bill. So, what's the plan? What's your plan? Well, we the day my kids were born, I have two boys. I have a twelve year old. I have a seven year old. Literally the Within days of their birth, I opened a 529 college savings plan for oh. both of them and started making just regular monthly Payments. deposits yeah. automatically through uh, you know direct debit, and we forgot about it. And they now each have nearly $20,000 saved up your for college, is... and my oldest is only 12 years old. Okay. So a little bit consistent over up. time okay. adds up. And look, college will probably not get any cheaper by the time they go, but I feel like we're we'll be in a good place to help them out. Well, you're not you're not quite halfway there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more to go. Okay, so I want to ask our listeners. So you may be thinking, you know what? They're going to pay pay your own way. Just pay off those. Get a scholarship. I just don't think it's well. Get a scholarship. Okay, but not everybody is going to be eligible for for a scholarship. So I just don't think that it's 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 logical financially. Uh, right now to afford college without taking out a student loan if you're on your own. Yeah, that's uh, probably true. Okay. So let me ask our listeners to call in. Um, will you make your kids pay for college, whether it's work through college, uh, money they saved up mowing lawns uh, summer after summer, or a scholarship or a student loan? Are you going to make your kids foot the bill for college? 801-575-TALK. Taking your calls in three minutes. Special coverage with Dave Dejanovic. We're talking about uh, forgiving college debt as the Supreme Court of the United States is probably wrapping up arguments and listening to arguments right now um, by some plaintiffs who have brought cases through the courts uh, that have ended up in the laps of the justices to decide whether President Biden has overstepped his legal authority uh, through executive order to... um, enact a student loan forgiveness program. Uh, $20,000 down to $10,000 of forgiveness, kind of depending on what your income status was at the time you took out these loans. And it sounds like from our conversation with KSL legal analyst Taylor Greg Scordis that it's going to be summer before folks know where the Supreme Court will land on this. Um, but you and I wanted to get into the broader conversation about, you know, you're raising kids and they want to go to college. And uh, my my worry is, it's just I look at this number, if you send them to the University of Utah, 
at like $10,000 a year, let's just say, for tuition, depending on what degree they get or they pursue. And then you have them, they're not living in your home, they're living outside your home, but they can't get accommodations on campus. So it's 15 grand a year, probably in the low end, for them to live in an apartment off campus. You're looking at that four year bachelor's degree in the neighborhood of 100 grand or more, or they are looking at that. And I don't think they can do that. I mean, I suppose if your 19-year-old has this, like, $100,000 a year job right out of high school, they can do it. I don't think they can do that without a student loan. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is not – look, it's it's certainly complicated, and I have mixed feelings on this. On one hand, I, I don't know that everyone should go to college. I don't know that everyone has to go to college. Uh, but then I also feel like everybody who wants to go to college should – be able uh, to, to go to college. And part of the problem is a lot of times we get a degree that doesn't translate to a job or a career. And so that's difficult. We, we tend to talk about higher education in a very vocational way. And I think that's good. But on the other hand, I think we all have to be willing to acknowledge that part of the benefit of going to college is having experiences, yeah. being around yeah, people absolutely. that are different than you. Uh, maybe challenging your critical thinking skills and uh, being willing to rethink some of your uh, well, world, world views or assumptions, well, right? Speaking of critical thinking skills, like I, I don't have any, um, you know, any goals to be a software developer, but right. I had to learn how to create a software program as part of my degree yeah. path at Arizona State University. And trust me, I sat in that computer lab for, for days trying to figure it out. But when I figured it out and it actually ran and I got it, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, look, I, I agree with you on the college experience. The issue that I think a lot of our kids are going to be facing is the eye-popping cost of college. Let's bring in Scott uh, he's live on the line right now. Scott, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Kaysville. So what is your take on, uh, are your kids paying for college, or, or are you going to help them foot the bill? Well, when they were born, they didn't come up with the paperwork saying that I had to pay for college for them. So uh, when I was growing up, it was you get a scholarship and you go to school. And so that's what I've encouraged my kids to do is to whatever they can do to find a scholarship. But uh they're adults. That's their responsibility now. That's their responsibility. So. Well, I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I mean, there's, there's, look, they don't come out with paperwork at all except for, you know, a birth certificate. So I, it's, you know, that's your take. I, I did pay for my kids uh, a significant portion. I think two of my kids got uh, sports scholarships. So that paid for a good swath of that, yeah. uh, but not but not all. I mean, we ended up, you know, you end up paying for housing and food costs. And, and we were, I was happy to do that for my kids. Um, but everybody makes yeah. a different yeah. choice, right? Yeah. And you did a 529 and you said that's taken off and, and really made your kids a lot of a lot of interest along the way. Yeah, but I don't know. I, after talking to Scott, maybe you're I'll like, cash like, that in and you're like, uh, Look, kid, go on you did nice not vacation. come out with any paperwork. Jana from Stansbury Park. Uh, what are you counseling your kids on in terms of, the, of paying for college? Hi, um, I have a senior right now in high school, and I've made sure that he has a trade. So we've encouraged him to go to the Tula Tech here and uh, learn welding. So he's learning uh, a trade that he can help himself uh, put him, himself through college when he can. So 
so he'll get the trade, uh, the certification in welding, and then he can work as a welder. And if he chooses to go get a bachelor's degree in finance or something, maybe whatever it is, he will use that skill to put himself through college. That's right. Yes, he can do part-time welding and part-time yeah. school any way he uh, he wants to do it. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. But I think yep. it's important for our kids to have a trade yep. to fall back on, even if they get a degree. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Well, my daughter got training as an EMT. She now works as an EMT, but I don't want to tell you what the pay is. <laughs> it's it. I think it's about $16 an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's it's not exactly, you know, we're... She, we're you know, got got a windfall of money there coming in to help pay for college, sixteen dollars <laughs> yeah. an hour, and a limit on how many hours a week they can work. But the welding does sound amazing. I know welders do tend to make some good money. Uh, so, Jenna, I like that plan. Sherry from Springville, uh, what's your plan with your kids when it comes to paying for college? And is there any chance at all you're encouraging them to take out a student loan? <laughs> Hi. No, we have not done a student loan encouragement with them. My husband and I both did student loans. We worked and paid off our student loans. So I kind of feel a little, uh, you know, with that. But my husband was very um, adamant about wanting to provide tuition money for the kids. And so we have done that. My one son who was um, at school at Utah State, he was very proactive about getting a type of internship job in engineering um, just for the summer. And then they would work with him part-time through the school year so that he was able to support um, himself. And then he got married. And after he got married, the last um, year and a half, we never saw any more um, requests, if, if you want to call it that, for tuition at that wow. point. He started taking over, uh, like, all of his bills, like, every last thing, and literally dropping us from his life. And so, I mean, I felt really great because he felt a great sense of responsibility for taking care of himself. Quality parenting right there. I did not know that marriage was the fix to all of that, but it makes sense. Sherry, congratulations, and it's awesome your son is doing so well. Let's get out to Gary from West Valley City. Uh, what do you encourage uh, the kiddos to do when it gets to a college degree? Well, figure it out. You know, you don't have nobody... a dis- no no discussion with them at all. You just like just well, figure no, it out. No, no, we've, we've had plenty of discussion, but there's plenty of options out there for going to college. And the lady that said her kid learned a, a skill, mm-hmm. a trade. Uh, put yourself through college, uh, or find a job that will pay for your college. It's- does it make it? Uh, does it any, any of this in this conversation at all feel? And this is like you've talked about uh, Taylor. So Gary, stick with me here. Is that the cost of college? I mean, we need to take a serious look at that. Um, but if he goes to the University of Utah or even Utah State University, I mean, and lives off campus, that's a hundred thousand dollar bachelor's degree. Do we feel bad about so that at all, Gary? So don't go to college. Don't don't go to University of Utah. Go to Salt Lake Community College. Yeah, uh, you can get yeah. Four thousand a year. I thought, yeah, 
college college is uh, way too expensive, and they waste a lot of your time teaching classes just to give people jobs, it seems like. Okay. Yeah. Well, Gary, thank you. I think, Taylor, you had a much different take on college being a, a waste of time because you felt like the experience – yeah, so I – look, I entered college with this kind of similar mentality. Like oh. Gary said, figure it out. I worked almost full-time for the first two and a half, almost three years of my college mm-hmm. career, and I was putting myself through school, Debbie, but I, I was not having the kind of experience and opportunities – that you were just checking a box. I, I was, and so on one hand, assignments. Yeah, on one hand, I get it, and I I feel that you know in my bones. Figure it out, pay your own way, get it done. But then on the other hand, when I quit my full time job, and I took out a student loan, and I was nothing but a college student, it changed everything for me. And you were able to get more involved. In that decision and- led to the career I have today. Which is a lobbyist. Yes. Well, not just a lobbyist, Debbie. Come on. That's, we don't always use the L word. All right. I, <laughs> no, I'm a consultant. Own, I like saying I'm a consultant. Firm, right? Yes, I do. Public yeah, relations. but yeah. those opportunities that built my career came. Right on the money. Special coverage with Dave and Dejanovic. You want to hear a secret, Taylor? Let's hear it. Right on the money discussions are, oh, they're by far one of my favorite. I feel like I'm walking into a trap right now, Debbie. Just because of the music? Yeah. Yeah. A little scary. So let's talk about um, how much we spend on restaurants because I think this is one of the eye-popping things in our budget that is just eating away at our ability to save for college, for example, <laughs> or, or have a... Um, emergency fund of a couple thousand dollars. Or, or, Debbie, tipping your DoorDash drivers <laughs> is putting other people's kids through college. There you go. Let's let's talk about how much the new statistics show we are spending on eating out compared to how much we spend on you know food overall in our monthly budget. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture compiles... Um, money we spend on food. They, they have statistics. This statistic uh, that I just saw, now it's usually a year behind, right? Because it takes them a while to compile statistics and get the data. So uh, this one's a, a little bit behind, but it just gives us a great, it gives us something to chew on when it comes to ah, saving I, money I, I see and cutting there. things out of our yeah. budget. So They've found that 55% of the money we spend on food, so think of your entire food budget in a month, half, more than half, 55% of that goes to eating out. You're working to pay restaurants. And if you if that's your goal, hey, the servers love you. Debbie, don't you judge half. me. Don't you make me feel bad about this because, listen, I am still operating in the post-COVID world where – we are being celebrated for eating out and supporting our local businesses. Don't don't make me I feel see. bad about okay, that. Okay, so when yeah. then Governor Gary Herbert encouraged all of us to eat out a couple of days a week during COVID to keep the restaurants afloat. Yeah, that that made sense. Okay, so we are doing a public service. So so on average, just off the top of your head, I haven't asked you to do the math ahead of time. How much do you think you spend every week eating out? Now, this is time of year is probably a little different for you because you are lobbying on Utah's Capitol Hill. Yeah. And probably up until all hours of the night or even on the Hill in meetings. And so 
you didn't bring your your home's refrigerator with you in the car, so you can't make a meal sure. up there. So you got to yeah. there's a cafeteria up there. You can eat out. It's ten fifteen bucks to eat a decent meal up there. It's fifteen dollars if you go anywhere else. But how much per week would you say? Well, so. I would separate for for work, right? Uh, Meals are a very important part of my business. Uh, Meeting with clients over lunch Mm. or breakfast, uh, often that is a few times per week, and it can be almost every day sometimes. So business versus – let's talk personal. Let's talk personal. I'd say – I am embarrassed to admit this, and I know I'm going to hear about it. We're just going to air this right now. We're going to fix it. During a particularly busy week, Debbie, I probably order DoorDash or Grubhub three or four times what? a week. Yeah. You need to leave the studio. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, this relationship's look, over. See, I Taylor. told you I was walking into a trap. So that is probably, <laughs> I want to say, let's say- Three to four times a week. Yeah. I have two boys. We have uh, very particular tastes in, in food, and uh, it's just convenient, and time is money, So this is Debbie. So time this is, is money. costing- would you say between two hundred? I'd say two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars a week, probably on meal delivery. Um, again, Thanks. having busy hours, and my wife owns her own business also, okay. and she works, so we don't eat out that often as a family. Um, and oh, do you eat at home a lot? We do eat at home. I try to smoke uh, like meat, mm. barbecue as often as I can. Often, you know, in the wintertime after a huge snowstorm, it's a little more difficult. But, uh, yeah, I, I think we're probably doing a lot of meal delivery, picking things up on the way home. <sighs> and uh, I, can't, I can't help you. I'm sorry. At $250 a week in meal deliveries, wow. You've re- so that's, that's like $1,000 a month. How many kids, how many college students that are Grubhub deliverers, Debbie, am yes, I helping with okay. your college? Okay. So, so the, I, I think this is the number one way. The, so when you talk about I need to earn more money, well, I think the the first question instead of that, uh, exploring that avenue is how can I save money in the in the current monthly budget that I have right now, and I think this is the number one way you can give the family budget a raise is by cutting back how often. And I'm not just speaking to you, Taylor. So don't Fine. staring at me. You're like looking. I'm you're looking at me. I right just now, think this Debbie. is this was my experience when um, I was. Raising kids, and yeah. we ate at home a lot, and I did a lot of crock pot cooking, and it, you know, and I always had meal plans as, as often as I could, uh, because of the unaffordability of eating. I'll give you just one quick example. We just got in the car one on a Friday night, a Saturday night it was a weekend night. We didn't feel like cooking at home, and so we decided to just run out and get a quick bite to eat, and could not find a place that we could get into in a reasonable amount of time, and we spotted. Red Lobster. Who in the world is going to Red Lobster with their family on a Saturday night? It was us. And by the time we walked out of there, it was like $175. Mm. Yeah. You know, because once you get going on the skewered <laughs> shrimp and all this other, and all the, you know, all the salads. And the, I mean, by the time we were done, I was like standing up and like, I'm I'm ordering drinks for everybody in this restaurant because our tab is so high Why at not? this point. Why not? Go for it. At this point. Yeah. Uh, so I, we were very conscientious about eating at home. And this actually is my, is the the tip that I give my, my own kids. If you go out to eat for lunch Monday through Friday, it's about 50 to $75 a week. And if you just 
uh, add that up, that's tw- uh, you know about twenty five hundred dollars a year right yeah. there. Just just eating lunch out. Restaurants, according to Money Under Thirty website, mark up their food products by three hundred percent. So if you make a fifteen dollar meal at home, it'll cost you like four to five dollars to make it at home. Now, but you have to make it. <laughs> You have to make it, Debbie. Is that the problem? Well, my wife is a great cook. And she's busy. She's busy. She's busy. Yeah, that's and I'm how busy. I've always felt. And it it look, time is money mm-hmm. and it takes time and energy and ingredients to cook a meal. That's true. And, and so it could cost a little bit more to make that meal if you have to buy all the ingredients. Yes. And and don't try to make anything with eggs because then you're way over budget. So this website that I was looking at, I think this is great advice. Uh, eggs. Um they're, those prices are coming down. Those prices are coming down. Don't stop eating out altogether is the advice. You you can't go cold turkey on eating from home. But this maybe don't a, go to Red Lobster and, <laughs> and buy drinks for everyone. I didn't, mean to, yeah. I didn't mean to out Red Lobster. It's probably a wonderful meal. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But I just remember the, 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 the final price. I fell over. I It was one of those drives home where I don't think I said anything to anybody. <laughs> Regrets. Yeah. Well, Regrats. when was the last yeah, time you sure. ate at the Cheesecake Factory, Debbie? <laughs> Probably a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. It's not cheap. Yeah. So I only eat at the Cheesecake Factory if I, if I get a gift card. Ah. Honestly, that's, that's a true story. So if you make just uh, two meals at home per week, so instead of eating out every day or as often as you do, if you just take, okay, a couple of days a week, I'm going to make what I would have run out and gotten. You know, or had ordered through, was it Grubhub, DoorDash? Yeah. Okay. All these Uber Eats. Uh, you will save almost $1,000 a year. I think that's significant. It is significant. I wish I could get just more of a gee whiz out of you. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's significant. What you're saying is that's significant, but it's not reality. It's not. Listen, I, I could probably be better about the food budget, and I could probably be more disciplined, and be more prepared with meal planning. All of that is true, right? But at the same time, working full-time, my wife working full-time, both of us with our businesses, with a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old, sports practices, different events, uh, community things. Look, just getting food on the table at the right time is a win, and and how that food gets there sometimes is less important. But at least I've given you the tools. If you decide to cut the budget... Look at how often you're eating out and see if you can make some cuts there. Straight ahead, uh, the artist Pink, you know Pink. I do, yeah. yeah. She caught my attention uh, when she shared that she does not let her daughter use social media. I told her, point blank, if you can produce literature for me from a reputable source that tells me that social media is good for you, then you can be on it. Okay. Does that literature, does that study exist anywhere that Pink's daughter will be able to dig up something that says social media is good for a preteen? We're going to ask Dr. Tom Golightly that question. Dave The artist Pink uh, has a beautiful, beautiful singing voice. She's also made an excellent point about her daughter and how she lays down the law regarding social media use. So Taylor Morgan, in today for Dave Noriega, you asked me if we were going to replay what Pink had said. Yeah, yeah. So Pink made some very interesting interesting points here uh, about social media use. Uh, and she essentially gave her daughter an option. 
prove that it's beneficial to you. Research this, <laughs> prove it to me, and then we'll talk about it. For me, my kids don't have a phone, and my daughter's the only 11-year-old that, in her class that doesn't have one. Wow. And I'm actually going to play this back for my son. Was, go back. Okay, go lot, ahead. Well, yes. That's what we about. You. Right? It's hard. A lot of yeah. my friends, you know, they, they have their kids on TikTok, and, and I don't. And, you know, I told Willow, I said, that doesn't just, just move my needle. They're not my kids. You're my kid. And... Also, you have a lot of eyes. She has a lot of eyes on her, too. So she has a little watch. She can text me if she needs to get picked up a little later or sooner. And she has all the emergency stuff. But I told her, point blank, if you can produce literature for me from a reputable source that tells me that social media is good for you, then you can be on it. And, Taylor, in the break, you'd said, wow, Pink is doing the job that all parents should be doing. Absolutely. But yet on Utah's Capitol Hill, they're trying to legislate a lot regarding who can use social media and age verification right now. And he's like, well, let's just do do what Pink's doing. This is exactly what I've been saying. And uh, I guess I I need to refer to a uh, a celebrity, uh, a rock star here, to, to show us how to parent. But yeah, don't give your kids a phone. Social media is not good for kids, right? We have a wealth of, of data, of studies that clearly show social media use is very harmful to kids, particularly to, to young girls. We know that. Nobody is disputing that. But the Utah legislature this year has decided that Utah parents aren't capable of doing what Pink is doing here, and they are running legislation that would uh, prohibit uh, anyone from creating a new social media account without verifying uh, age and identity. They have to be a certain age yeah. or have parents' permission. It's just the parents' job. Like, yeah. who is giving yeah. the kids the phones and access to social media? It's the parents. Dr. Tom Golightly, he uh, works at BYU. He's a psychologist, often a guest on the show. Uh, what do you think about Pink's parenting style when it comes to social media? Well, I have to say I can't disagree too much with her, uh, especially with with developing brains. And uh, research is pretty clear that there are a lot of negatives uh, to social media use, especially uh, high levels of social media use. Um, there are some positives from 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 uh, what we've seen over the past few years, but we have to weigh those positives with the negatives, and uh, it can be really tough. And there's some pretty big implications. For people that are that are constantly uh, going through all of the platforms and and making comparisons with with people from around the world, yeah. When you say there are some positives, um, is there a chance that Pink's daughter might find some literature from a reputable <laughs> source that actually says social media is good for her? Do you think that's a possibility? Is there anything out there that says it is beneficial? Well, my guess is I, I don't know how old Pink's daughter is. 11, is she 11 or 11, so? 11, yeah. Uh, um, and sorry, just one sec. My, my phone had some problems there. Oh, no, Can you still no hear worries. Me? Yeah, we got you back, okay. doctor. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, she's 11 years old. Um, I, my guess is she knows how to use Google better than we do, uh, any of the three of us, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, so she probably could go to Google Scholar and find some things that, that work to her benefit. But what we have seen from research is it does broaden our network and we can keep up with friends. I, I grew up in a military family and having moved around so much, I would have appreciated having a social media platform where I could have kept in touch for years, you know, as I moved away every couple of three years. 
career exploration is a lot easier and, and more manageable. Charitable donations and social movements are up. Um, and collaboration with school projects are also uh, up. We can do more group projects because communication is, is easier. Um, but, you know, that again, do those outweigh all of the negatives that, that we've heard about over time? So what I'm hearing is a, a child at 11, 12, 13, whatever age, doom scrolling, TikTok um, or Facebook. I don't know how many young kids are on Facebook anymore. Instagram is probably not mentally healthy to the point where a parent who says, you know, no social media, it would be swayed. I, I don't, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but sure. I, I, I don't think our, our young brains are developed enough to be doing that at that point. We can't manage the comparison in in an appropriate way. Uh, our brains just aren't ready to manage that emotion um, and, and the ability to read social cues and, and the unrealistic expectations from body image, success, lifestyle, et cetera. We can't separate, you know, what's reality and what isn't as well uh, when we're younger. So I don't know if, and, and all of those benefits that I just mentioned might come a little bit later on in adolescence or, or in young adulthood as opposed to in childhood. I, I did not allow my kids to have smartphones, and so they had to share the pink flip phone that we got for our oldest daughter for many years uh, until they were 15. And it, it was so give me an idea. Was that too soon for them to have access? Um, or is 15, 16 years old? I think my daughter was probably 16. My son was 15. Is that is that an okay age, or is that still too young? Did I screw up? Well, I, 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 I'm not going to judge it, but, you know. Too uh, late now, Debbie. Yeah. Can, I just, can I teleport back in time and fix that? No, I think what we have to be aware of, if we're going to allow that, um, is, is that we know that they are still trying to learn emotion regulation, and they're still trying to learn who they are and how they interact with the world. So as long as we're helping them through that process, I, I think it's fine to expose them to those things. There were certain platforms that we were more okay with as parents than others, um, but we also kind of want them to, to be exposed to how they're going to manage it, and why not learn that while you're with a parent? Uh, but you need to be involved, I would say, in their social media use and not just letting them have carte blanche over which platforms and how often they engage in all of those things. Uh, my daughter, who, who just turned 16, she's like, I, I do not want this platform. I would be okay with this platform. Mm. And we're kind of letting her make some choices on that. But mm. we're also kind of involved in that. Yeah, I think involvement there is, is really awesome. the key. So uh, Tom Gwitely, Assistant Director of Athletics Counseling and Psychological Services at BYU. Thank you for yeah, joining us. Yeah, always appreciate show. you, Dr. Tom. Taylor, what are you doing with your own kiddos? They're young. They're not... 12-year-old son, 7th grade. Okay, so preteen. He just barely got a phone for the first time. He got the grades. We had a deal. He got the phone. He No social media. Okay. Just the phone. There's a way to... We so, control that. Okay, okay. We regulate it. We, we monitor it. It takes time and effort to go through his phone and check his texts. And he has already figured out tricks and tools on that phone I never knew existed. Right? He's already way ahead of us. And it's not going to be easy. So this is a smartphone. This is a, it's an iPhone. Okay. We still lock it down. We have some software that we use an app to control it and manage his access to the internet and any other apps. He is not going to have a social media account of any kind for the foreseeable future. 
Um, well, he's too young, right? To, way too young. To qualify even. If you were doing things legit, some of these platforms are like 13 years old. I guess they can find workarounds. Do you get – I was worried – we're running out of time, but I was always worried about the them finding the workaround without my knowledge. Yeah. That, I mean, look. So we, we monitored closely. We have to be involved. It takes time and effort. It takes parenting. We can't let others keep our kids safe for us. So you like the pink style of parenting. I do. You have to be involved. Yeah. You have to say no. It's a big no-go right now for her daughter, Willow, to have um, any sort of social media, and she even – she doesn't even have a smartphone. She just has a little watch if she needs to be. That's what my kids had till she they were 12, 13. Yeah. Uh, straight ahead, Boyd Matheson uh, joining us in just a few minutes. He's going to give us his take on the Supreme Court case today that was argued regarding student loan forgiveness. That's straight ahead. Dave and Dujanovic have inside sources. All right, now we're ready to rock and roll with Boyd Matheson of Inside Sources. Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega. Boyd just running into studio from the newsroom to give us a lowdown on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and the arguments before the United States Supreme Court today. Uh, Taylor, before we bring Boyd into the conversation, any any hot takes on whether you think this this plan will be upheld by the Supreme Court. Not a chance. Tell not, us how you really feel. I'm not, an, <laughs> I'm not an attorney. I'm not a constitutional scholar. But I see the makeup of this court. And I just see the reality of this program and how it was done by executive order. Do not sell yourself short. Uh, you are currently involved in the political process day in and day out in Utah on Capitol Hill. As a lobbyist, you also run a politically connected public relations firm, and you worked back in D.C. in the House. I did. So you it's not as though you're just— I'm not a just, total dummy is what you're saying. <laughs> and, and again, I you did— You understand pay, the process. I Can paid, I come in and defend Taylor I from paid himself? off <laughs> my last loan a week before this program was ordered, which Student means loan. I'm responsible for it. Right, this yeah. is my fault. Well, you already made it. You're welcome, America. <laughs> uh, Boyd um, Taylor's given this an absolute no, no chance at all. From what your inside sources are telling you, <laughs> probably yeah. much the same. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because it will really come down to, to two arguments. One will be the standing argument: Do these states really have standing? Have they really been harmed? Uh, by what this program that was done by executive order, as Taylor said. Uh, so that will be one question. Uh, will any of the conservative justices, uh, conservatives have been very heavy on you have to have standing? Yeah, they've uh, in actually these dismissed some cases exactly. along the way or not listened to or taken up the arguments because they don't believe the parties have had standing, not That's in right. this case, but in others. Exactly. And uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson made that very poignant this morning in uh, some of her opening statements as she was uh, questioning the the state's representatives uh, saying, look, if you guys have standing, we've totally redefined what standing is. That could unravel a whole lot of other cases. So very interesting from the junior member of the court uh, to really call out the court on the standing issue. The other side, of course, is the separation of powers in terms of uh, what the president can and can't do. It's this major questions doctrine. Uh, If it's going to be something significant, Congress needs to do it by law rather than the president doing it uh, with a cell phone and a pen. (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) – is this just one more example, boy? Do you think of executive orders running amok? Yeah, it is, and it doesn't matter which party does it. Right? It doesn't yeah. matter who the the occupant of the Oval Office is. What is done by executive order either gets undone by executive order by the, the next president of a different party, 
or it starts the legal process. Because as soon as something's done by executive order, immediately someone's going to file a lawsuit, and then it works its way up through the court. And that's why we have such contentious, such politicized Mm -hmm. hearings for Supreme Court nominees, because Congress isn't doing their job. And because Congress isn't doing their jobs, presidents are more than happy to take that power, do it by executive order, and that's why we end up in the courts. When I look at the total tab that could potentially be wiped out if this program is upheld, if the courts side with the president, $400 billion in student loan debt, gone. 40 million Americans affected, except for Taylor Morgan, who paid his off a week early, <laughs> which is, is – it seems kind of a For the good of the nation, you uh, did yeah, that. But it seemed, I, I know why yeah. you did it, and you did, you, you did what you – thought was the right thing to do and it it is the right thing to do right you take out a loan yeah. you pay it back yeah um, but 400 billion dollars total do we have a larger discussion and we've been hinting at this all morning long that needs to be held and had about the ridiculous price of obtaining a bachelor's degree nine thousand dollars ninety five hundred dollars a semester just for tuition and then you tack on all these what i call mystery fees yeah. which are additional <laughs> thousands of dollars along the way yeah um, you know, I'm looking at if a kid lives off campus, kid, 20 something year old lives off campus, it is go for your degree would cost them, you know, a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. Um, do we need to have a larger discussion and is student loans at least partially responsible for driving up the price to these wildly expensive, uh, degrees? No question about it. And, uh, let me take you down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Let's go. So here's a really interesting component that not a lot of people are talking about. So uh, under current law, uh, a student could could pay 20% of their income each year towards their student loan. And then after 25 years, anything left gets wiped off the books. Okay. Under the president's executive order plan, you only have to pay 5% of your income over 10 years. Whoa. And then everything gets wiped out. So basically, for the price of cable TV payment every month, sixty-eight bucks a month, you could do that for ten years, and then the rest mm. of your student loan you know, goes down. And so wow. now, so now let's get to the real dollars and cents of it. So okay. that's an interesting thing. Uh, and of course, as you said, Debbie, the institutions are no dummies. So here's how it here's <laughs> how it ratchets that. up. Uh, in the year two thousand, it was about fourteen point eight thousand uh, a year. Uh, for the college, then by 2010 it went up to 23,000, and now in 2023 we're at 37.6 thousand mm. uh, for a and, degree. For a degree, okay. Uh, I think that's even low, but go uh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. State, I would argue. Yeah, this is not a Harvard. This is not a Stanford. Depending on what degree you get, exactly. Right? Okay, uh, but just on the on those basics alone, uh, you're going from you know over a 20 year period, you're going up, you know, more, triple. Uh, basically, in terms of the cost, uh, and so of course that's driving it when institutions know there's more money, or or if a student knows, hey, you know what, I'm only going to have to pay ten percent, or I'm only going to have to pay five percent of whatever my income is over ten years, then I can wipe out the rest of my loans. Um, that's that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, and, and the irony there is that going to college should give you more income and a greater ability to pay off those loans. That's kind of the whole idea, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. So limiting your those loan repayments to such a small portion of your income seems like we're defeating the entire purpose. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation yesterday uh, with someone from the Washington Post, and they were talking about where this is becoming a problem for the president and for the Democratic Party. They have this U-shaped party that has a lot of upper class, upper income, and then lower class, lower income. So they don't have that middle class that they used to really have in the Democratic Party. Hmm. And that's starting to impact 
policy decisions just like this. Mm. Uh, a lot of those who are going to benefit from this program uh, are going to be upper middle class people who have earned a degree at an expensive institution and they still aren't making a ton of money because they're very early in their career. So they qualify. I mean, think about it. A married couple just coming out of college, they can make up to 250000 a year so that is and so, still qualify. I have to say hmm. that has that number. I don't. You know, I don't know if they were behind the scenes using all the the, the big calculators back in D.C. to come up with $125,000 a year. You could qualify for loan forgiveness as a single person. $250,000 a year as a married couple. That just seems like astronomical. Like that's a lot of money that folks are making and they're still getting these loans forgiven. Do we have any insight at all as to how they came up with these numbers? Or do they just say like they use the that sounds good meter? <laughs> it seems yeah. crazy. That sounds, yeah. 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 Although the rest of us are like that seems wildly uh like a, that seems like a wildly high income level to be forgiving these yeah, so think, loans. So think who it benefits. It benefits a lot of those who are Big time donors, yeah. Yeah. big time players. Yeah. Uh, and so, so what you're saying been, is maybe political. Hundred percent political. Okay, I have to add something. Political. Go ahead. Something crazy about this. I worked in uh, in Congress for a committee in Congress for a few years. While I was working there, the committee was paying me a salary and benefits, and also they were paying for my graduate school, the tuition. Right. Well, I could have used that time working for Congress. That was eligible for a twenty thousand dollar public service relief of student loan debt so you could have pocketed money on that i could yeah. and i didn't <laughs> apply for that because i not. thought it was right. absurd <laughs> it was just absurd and so we're going we're giving forgiveness to jobs and roles and experience that is is honestly it's uh, entitled well, you, it's privileged well yeah. you 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 were already Compensated. Or I was were, compensated. Getting, I had my school paid for, yeah. and it led to career opportunities. Why? Why should the government be paying me for mm-hmm. the time that I was already paid for? Yeah, exactly. And so that's where you get to coming back full circle to your question, Tim. Who was in the room where it happened? Uh, yeah. And there were people in the room where it happened. Uh, and a lot of that is those political tugs and pulls, and it happens on on both sides of the aisle. This one in particular is one that I think the president is really struggling with. I think the Democratic Party is increasingly struggling with uh, because they're they're starting to make a lot of policy decisions that benefit that upper middle class yeah. to upper class, uh, and then they're going to turn around and figure out. Okay, now how do we keep Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid rolling? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that tension continues to grow. And President Biden is walking a really fine tightrope uh, on a lot of that. But uh, mm-hmm. this uh, student loans is really just this is turning into a big debacle. A, it's a, a big political debacle. Uh, he put the cart before the horse, came out with the announcement, and now the Supreme Court is you know taking it up. It could take months. So I got I got a plan for political parties. Don't make promises you don't know if you can keep. <laughs> Oh, Debbie, what are they going to talk about? <laughs> Thanks. 2023 special coverage with David Dijanovic. KSL News Radio's Lindsay Ericks uh, covering the final days of the 2023 general session of the Utah legislature. Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega just has, has the day off. And you swooped in here on your way to Capitol <laughs> Hill uh, because you are in the throes of the final hours of the session as well as a lobbyist. Yeah, it is the final week of the legislative session. It wraps at 11.59 p.m. Friday night. Uh, I, I know how many minutes that is, and I'm not going to tell you because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> but, yeah, we're in the final week. A lot happening. This, Debbie, is 
the most exciting week. It is. Anything can happen. Um, Lindsay Ertz, Castle News Radio, standing by live for us. Uh, Lindsay, I know we're going to be broadcasting live from 1 o'clock in the afternoon until 7 o'clock on Friday evening with Boyd and with Jeff Kaplan as well. And I'm sure you're going to be on the Hill all week long. What are the what are the pieces of legislation that you've got your eyes fixated on this these last few days? Well, guys, I will just tell you, I asked Senate leadership yesterday if we were going to indeed go until midnight on Friday night, and they all just laughed at me. So, <laughs> What kind of question? Why would you even <laughs> ask, Lindsay? Come on. It's tradition. You, <laughs> I don't know. If that gives you any indication about what this week is going to be like. Uh, I think today's bills that I'm tracking also give you an indication that things can change by the minute on Capitol Hill this week. Um I have been tracking this bill that we talked about yesterday, Deb, when Dave was here, and that was the bill to prohibit these um, diversity statements from being used with applicants and admissions for jobs and admissions for jobs with the state, with public universities, uh, for applying to grad schools and stuff like that. Um, This bill was pretty controversial, and it got heard in a Senate hearing um, yesterday, but it failed to make it out of committee. Well, it's been on a little bit of a wild ride over the last 24 hours, and we noticed late last night that it got put back on an agenda, but then just this morning, it was again pulled from that agenda. So if that gives you any indication on how fast things are moving, I have spoken to the sponsor, Representative Katie Hall, of that bill, and she says they are going to be um, studying that during the interim. Now, with all of that said, things can change by the minute. Uh, A bill that has been uh, heard by... I believe one chamber or one committee chamber can be brought to the floor of the other chamber without a committee in that chamber. So it's possible that these bills that have passed the House but haven't had a Senate hearing, for example, could then be heard on the on the Senate floor. Yeah. And that's what we mentioned earlier, Debbie, when we were talking about suspending the rules. It, It is it is another reason why this is such an exciting, wacky week up on the Hill, because Anything can happen at any time. There are rules to the process, but those rules can be suspended at any moment. Linz, uh, what do you know in terms of the food tax? We've talked about this for 100 years now. Uh, the legislature goes back and forth. Uh, for many years, we didn't have one, and then we had one, and then and now there's this discussion as to whether to repeal the, the state portion of the of the tax that we pay at grocery stores, uh, what where's that at? Is it getting anywhere? Yeah, so this is going to be a little bit of catch you up uh, segment right now. But um, we know that this bill is moving through the legislature. I believe it's in a committee again today. And this there is a bill joined with a resolution. And the bill says we will take the state sales tax on food if a constitutional amendment is approved in 2024 that says we're going to remove the earmark for education, that that go to income tax. Now, we have been asking lawmakers every single day where their negotiations are with education stakeholders, because education groups are really invested that their funding be constitutionally protected, not just in a base budget or something that's subject to change every single year, but protected by the Constitution. And so we thought there might be an update yesterday, but Senator Ann Milner, who's been in talks with the education groups, told us that nothing has moved forward yet. So it appears that education may be digging in their heels in terms of the guns that they're sticking to uh, in terms of what they want in the Constitution. We know that they want to adjust for inflation and they want to adjust for that um, enrollment growth and things like that. Those are things 
they want protected on top of their WPU going up and things like that, which have already been funded. But um, we haven't seen that deal struck yet between education groups and lawmakers. Meanwhile, the bill and the resolution are moving forward. So what I suspect will happen is that will likely pass as it is. Right now, just saying that constitutionally, voters would have to prove getting rid of the earmark on education. But keep in mind, we have another legislative session before the ballot in 2024. So next year, okay. next session, we could come back and change that language in the of what we put on the question on the ballot to say, do you want us to fund education first and then everything else after that? So it might change not just from a removing the earmark, but an amendment of the earmark. Yeah, this is this is a very fascinating subject and it is complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, Debbie, if you recall, last November, the legislature uh, put on a ballot measure on the ballot that surprised a lot of voters yeah. that would have given them some additional yeah. uh, d- control over the budget during emergency remember, sessions. I remember coming in and saying, I don't know where this came from. I've never heard of this before. That lost big it did lo- on it the ballot. Yeah. The legislature knows now that if they try to just put a earmark removal for education on the ballot, that it will lose. They need to tie it to a populist issue like the repeal of the state food tax and or they need to get the education community behind a removal of the earmark. And that's what I I was going to bring that up, Linz, is the education community, just as an outsider looking in, but they hold all the cards on this right now. Why in the world should they budge on how education is funded, which voters approved the constitutional amendment for in the late 90s? Because we're, we, I think as voters and, uh, you know, as parents, I was just a brand new parent then, but I was also uh, reporting on Capitol Hill and reporting on educational issues that we felt that there was a, uh, a sense of um, they, a, loss, a loss of focus from legislators back then regarding the spending on education. And I think I mentioned this a couple of days ago when we were talking, that I walked into classrooms and and, in schools where encyclopedias were 35 years old. And there were no computers. Like, there there was one computer for numerous kids, and yet lawmakers were in the throes of buying themselves new laptops, of course, funded with taxpayer money. So this was the 90s, and I don't – I think a lot of – us who've been around for a while are going to have a hard time forgetting that and getting past that. So in my view, lawmakers really have to offer something up to education in order to move that needle because they're going to have to get behind it and encourage voters to repeal, I guess if that's the right word, word that constitutional amendment that we put in place, I don't know, 25 years ago, yeah. 26 yeah, years that- ago. What I will say is it's possible that at least some education groups, maybe not all of them, maybe everyone has different views on this, but at least some education groups might be okay with the earmark going away because lawmakers have consistently brought down the income tax, which ultimately means less funding for education and those other social services that it funds, right? And so perhaps some of them want it shored up in a different way and shored up in what we fund through income tax and in the order we fund it in order to protect it because that pot continues to go down. And there's even been ideas floated that it go away altogether. Yeah, the legislature has explored and I think will continue to explore the possibility of eliminating the state income tax altogether. 
And if there is no state income tax, there is no earmark. Well, a lot of states don't have a state Eight other tax. states in the country right now and, have and, no state income And we've income had tax. that conversation, I think it was with the president of the Senate a couple, several weeks ago when the legislature kicked off, Lynn's, and that was the, this very conversation as you worry about people picking up and moving, uh, retirees considering moving to a state that they don't have to pay a state income tax. Yeah. Yeah, and Senator, uh, sorry, Senate President Stuart Adams said that very thing to me, okay. that it is indeed that it is the goal for income tax to go away. They believe taxing consumption is better than taxing productivity is how he put it, right? So taxing the sales as opposed to taxing people's ability to work, right? So that's the overall overarching philosophy that many of them believe. And so we have sort of seen sort of this yeah. lowering of the income tax rate. And I should also say that education groups also want the food sales tax to go away. So that is something okay. that they've worked together on in the past, um, that they believe that that's something good for a lot of people. So they want that to go as, go away as well. So we will just have to wait and see whether education groups get on board and in what way we fund education. And to be fair, lawmakers have vowed that they will fund education. Yeah, of course. Um, Lindsay Ertz, I can never, I just can't turn away from your coverage. It has been phenomenal. Um, all session long. Um, so thank you so much for jumping on the line. Our commitment is to have you in the 11 o'clock hour. Join us every single day this week as we march up to the final final hours of the 2023 general session. And just looking at the tax relief, um, $400 million, the Executive Appropriations uh, Committee has agreed to $400 million in tax relief reducing income ta- the income tax rate for Utah residents from 4.85% to 4.65%. Doesn't sound like a, a ton of money per person, but it adds up to hundreds of millions of dollars, Taylor. Yeah. I was expecting maybe a larger tax cut, even maybe a tax rebate uh, this session with the surplus. <laughs> but uh, instead, the legislature has provided a tax cut and they've made huge investments in infrastructure and in education. But no rebate. No rebate. No rebate. Dave and Dujanovic. Dave and Dujanovic. So we're bringing the KSL 5 investigative team right now who, quite frankly, in the reporting last night at 10 on KSL 5 News, called out police departments in several cities across Utah. So it doesn't matter where you live. Uh, leave the dial alone right now because this could involve your city. So as a as a result, I mean, you guys have they have pieced together um, multiple cases of one individual accused of assaulting women. Yep. Uh, di- sexual assault. Yep. Right. Yep. Okay. So I want to make sure I get that right. In numerous different in different jurisdictions, um, so different cities, and then the, these women go to report it to police, and it's like they it's falling on deaf ears. Taylor Morgan in today for Dave Noriega. Um, This is, I mean, this story to me, in my mind, it just highlights Utah's system of injustice. Yeah. Where women go in and report a crime, but then they... Their case never sees the light of day. It's like essentially sees the round file and and they they don't hear back from police. Yeah. And we I mean, we have seen this uh, many times. Uh, This reminds me of the Lauren McCluskey case where there was a lack of communication and coordination between the University of Utah Police Department and the Salt Lake City Police Department. And information was not shared. It went into silos 
And if and, I recall, he was on parole. Yes. As well, the individual who was the the uh, killer yeah. of Lauren McCluskey. Here, let's let's get the story with the investigative team. We're going to bring him in in just a moment to help walk us through it. But he, but here's it gives you a taste of what one victim uh, went through when she reported it to police. I didn't want anyone else to have to experience what I had, but I felt like I did what I could. I reported just feels like it's never enough. It's never mm. enough. Uh, KSL Television is investigative reporter Daniela Rivera and investigative producer Kara Ferdmond in studio with us right now. Uh, who wants to start? Uh, Kara, did you start the digging? On I did. This? Okay. Yep. So who are you tracking the individual, the suspect in these in these multiple cases? Let's start there. So his name is Joshua Homer. He's 27 years old. And his uh, cases and accusations go back to 2010 mm. when he was in junior high. And numerous women, Daniela, are you're, you're, I've, I saw your story. You're, you're out interviewing many, many women who are telling sort of a, a similar twisted tale about their encounter with this individual. So last night's report just looked at the sexual assault investigations against Joshua Homer. We looked at the cases of 12 women who came forward, reported to police a sexual assault. Only two of those led to charges. 12 women. 12 women. A dozen. And is it safe to assume that there are likely other victims who didn't report? We know that about 10 to 12 percent of sexual assaults are reported Mm. based on studies. So we've been told by experts, you have to assume there's others out yeah. there who haven't yeah. gone to police. But we just looked at the 12 who went to police regarding a sexual assault. So, Kira, they these women are in different, they probably live in different cities, so they go to their local police department. Yep. Pretty typical. Yep. Uh, and then their cases in many, obviously in 10 different instances, go don't result in in charges yep. what happens to these cases well what we saw last night was honestly shocking we saw um two women who took their cases to the davis county sheriff's office um and they never heard anything again for two years until mm. we started calling and asking what happened to those cases so they had no idea if it was even being nope. investigated they did not have a case number they couldn't find that number until um we were able to provide it for them it took three grammar requests on our part. So we file here Broadcast yep. House Records requests, mm-hmm. and you find... We finally found their report. They were bunched together into one report that ended with the detective saying that there were more reports in another jurisdiction and that that case would be closed with no further investigation required. It never went anywhere. It died right there right in there. 2020. But yet they, he acknowledges in that report that there are other cases and other... Police departments are looking into those cases, but but they never talk. I mean, do they do? The, do we need to give them phones? Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, right? Do they do they not text back and forth with other departments? It seems pretty. We know that several like, Davis County departments did have a meeting in 2020 to talk about the multiple cases that they were having mm-hmm. reported. Um, it it appears like they decided several cases were more likely to lead to charges than others. Unfortunately, those cases never led to charges either. Hmm. So one city, one department is assuming another city will pursue the charges. Yes. 
and everyone is assuming someone else is doing something and nobody does anything. Exactly. And look, we didn't find one department or one detective or one singular person messing up. This truly seems systemic. Yeah. That's why I call it Utah's system of injustice. And I've called it that for years because when I was in the investigative unit, we just found example after example of victims and cases falling through the cracks. Or in your case, uh, you found people weren't even, women weren't even getting a call back. Yep. You interviewed Justin Boardman, uh, Daniela. He's a retired detective, I believe, with West Valley City PD. Yep. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen him, but I saw him in your story. And and I thought this was very pointed because my my question was, just as, as a viewer of your story, and you answered this, what should people expect to happen when they report a case like this? So let's listen. You take the report. You have the survivor come in. And you talk with that survivor and listen to their experience. That's procedural justice. And that is something that we are horrible with. Were there cases where women were not even interviewed? Absolutely. And you heard that with the the Utah County case. That woman came in and she said that she had called up. And it it was a five-minute phone call with a detective. And that case was closed the day after she had reported, made the initial report. Um, The sheriff's office says in that case that she was not ready to move forward. But I will note that several months later, she found out about a state investigation into the same person, asked if she could be part of that investigation. Those state investigators interviewed her. They collected evidence that was not collected by the first agency she reported to. And her case is now under investigation. Great work. Uh, Last night focused on where police departments had dropped the ball and not... Um, effectively, or in some cases at all, thoroughly investigated uh, allegations, serious allegations of sexual assault. And tonight, I want to just give our listeners a taste of what they're going to see tonight on KSL 5 News at 10. The vast majority of these cases are only resolved through one thing, and that's a confession. If we don't get a confession to prove that there was lack of consent from our suspect, this case goes nowhere. What about DNA? That was a stunning thing to understand, that there's an organization operating under this belief that most of these cases, we need a rapist to say, yes, I raped. And that will be addressed by experts in tonight's reporting as well. All right. Great work. Uh, Kara Ferdman and Daniela Rivera of KSL 5 Television's investigative team, thanks for stopping by studio and breaking down um, what you discovered and uncovered. You can see their full report and it is worth every second of your time. I watched it this morning and I'm going to go back and watch it again. Um, I don't, you know, I think especially if you are, um, I'm going to just say raising young women and um, you feel like you need to empower them as a parent, this is excellent reporting and it gives you an insight into how police departments should work and unfortunately how they are not working um, thanks so much. Thank yeah. you. All right. Thank you. Can we have you guys back tomorrow? Absolutely. Absolutely. We wanna, we, yeah. So, so now you've got me wondering <laughs> if prosecutors are doing their jobs. And wait until you hear what they have to say about this whole he said, she said myth. All right. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Mm. Thanks. So forgiving college debt. Special coverage with Dave DeGenevic. We're going to get inside the mind of a constitutional law expert right now and ask him um, if the Biden administration is going to win or lose the Supreme Court battle over the student loan debt forgiveness plan that was was argued this morning in front of the justices, Taylor. 
you were you you had some pretty pretty, pretty <laughs> I'm hot trying to takes be on this. Uh, uh, no, judicious just, with my words here. No, I, you just came out of the gates when we were talking to Boyd about this about 45 minutes ago, and you said there's no way. I don't see going this to- lasting. I I think look, I think President Biden shortcut a very important policy discussion to score political points, issued an executive order. It was done hastily. It was incomplete. There's a reason Congress is there, and there's a process to do this legislatively, and I just don't see this being held up by the court. Uh, Jason Uliano, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Utah, uh, what's your expert take? Hi, Debbie and uh, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Uh, So I fully agree with Taylor that that's going to be the ultimate upshot of the case. And um, what I believe will happen, and it's not going to please your listeners who have student loan debt, uh, but that the court will find standing and ultimately strike down the loan forgiveness program. And let me just say a word, unpack a little bit about why I said the court will find standing, because that's really at the Mm. crux of the issue here. Uh, Across the board, legal scholars are, are pretty much in agreement with Taylor that there's not substantive power for President Biden to do what he's doing. Um, but the key issue is, is their legal standing for Nebraska and the other states to actually bring a lawsuit um, to the Supreme Court to challenge this action. And I say the court will find standing because I don't think that there's actually legal standing under current case law and precedent. Uh, but that's a good thing about being the Supreme Court. You can expand precedent, you can alter it, you can tweak it. And I, I think the court, if we listen to the uh, – I've seen some of the write-ups. Uh, the oral arguments aren't available yet, but I've seen some of the write-ups. And I think that's exactly what uh, the Supreme Court will do. They'll expand standing um, based on a couple cases that have come out in previous years in order to allow the state challenges to go forward here. I, I also wonder if they do um, push back on this, on the student loan forgiveness executive order uh, that President Biden put in place, if this would affect other executive orders. Maybe it's just a totally different case um, yeah. altogether, though, Jason or Professor. Yeah, so um, Chief Justice Roberts in the oral argument focused in on the major questions doctrine. And so he clearly sees this as being um, a potential terrain in executive authority. And just very briefly, the major questions doctrine says uh, that if Congress hands off power to the president, they need to do so very, very clearly and very, very explicitly. And I think that's the doctrine the court will use to strike down the uh, loan forgiveness here. They'll say that it wasn't given with explicit enough um, power and allocation, and that Congress didn't contemplate the president using the power in this way. And the other thing I want to add is that um, I I don't think there's legal standing here, but I think the way the Supreme Court's going to look at this, uh, we're often told two wrongs don't make a right. But here I think that's one of those rare exceptions where two wrongs actually do make a right. Um, Across the board, there's not legal power for President Biden to do what he's doing. And so the Supreme Court, in a certain sense, is going to expand precedent, change it a little bit um, along standing doctrine dimensions in order to um, get to the substantive aspect of this case in order to rein in the Biden administration. Now, Professor, I I want to get a sense of how long this process is going to take, because we know that student loan repayments have been frozen. They've been frozen since since COVID, and they are still frozen uh, through uh, 60 days after this litigation wraps. And so how, when will that be? When, for those who have student loans, when will they actually have to start making repayments? 
So under the course traditional timeline, we'd expect a decision in late June, somewhere around then. Um, it may come earlier because the court has actually done something procedurally very, very unusual in the student loan case. Uh, they've granted on the legal front what's known as a, a writ of certiorari before judgment, which means that they've grabbed the case from the Court of Appeals before the Court of Appeals has made a, um, an actual decision on the merits. And that's only happened two dozen times or so in the past 30 years. So mm-hmm. it's very, very unusual. Well, professor of law at the University of Utah, Jason uh, Uliano, thank you for joining us uh, to help walk us through this very big uh, case today that was before the Supreme Court this morning. And just let the record show that if I was a law student at the University of Utah, I'd be signing up for all, all your classes. <laughs> thank you so much for making it so snackable and easy for us to understand this morning. Brewing Utah weather. Special coverage on KSL News Radio. Let's turn now to KSL meteorologist Kevin Eubank. Hey, Kevin, Taylor Morgan's in today for Dave Noriega, so you don't have Dave to push around right now. <laughs> I just be on your best behavior, okay? That's your. Hey, like come big... on! I'm I'm fun. <laughs> Wait a second, Deb. I don't push anybody around. Come on! I respect Taylor. I respect Dave. I respect you. <laughs> You're the best. Let's talk snow. Uh, yeah, Taylor is actually he's actually a skier. He told me he skis up at Alta a lot, and you just looked at the snow totals. He's kind of doing your job for you there, Kev. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go, Morgan. Let's roll this thing. Should I, I go. call in sick this afternoon, or should I cancel all my meetings for tomorrow? Cancel all your meetings for tomorrow. So what we had last night was a little burst in the valleys, a quick one to two inches, caused some problems for the morning commute. But the sun is out now. Storm is over. We'll see a little bit of wind in the afternoon because the next storm is dropping in for tomorrow morning. Should be here between four and five in the morning. It'll snow for most of the day. Totals will be similar. It's not a big storm for the valleys. One to three in the valleys, two to four up on the benches. But the mountains are the big winners. They got a foot yesterday. They got a foot last night. They're going to get another foot tomorrow. Huge totals in the mountains of Utah. And it just seems like it's been going on and on and on. So tomorrow will be the bigger storm for the mountains. And then we're done for a little while. We'll get a couple clip buys on Thursday, Friday. Another one Saturday, Sunday. But uh, the good news is, Debbie, you're not shoveling a foot in the valleys. That's the uh, best. Yeah, it is, but I will tell you, the commute was once again slick this morning. Not as bad as it has been in the past, but I'm, I think my nerves have kind of overwinter. i got to be honest with you. If Mother Nature just kind of turned off the snow spigot right now, I wouldn't no, be sad. No, 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 I would no, not Debbie, be sad. But, but so, Kev, I, I was, we were talking to, you know, your coworker in the weather department, Matt Johnson, earlier today, and we're talking yeah. about this weather pattern going like kind of in, in through March, it looks like. That's right. Long-term charts show that the overall flow coming in from the Pacific is so good that we're going to continue to see the stormy pattern right on through, you know, March is tomorrow, right? So we're right on yeah. through the next couple of couple of uh, um, weeks. And, and the good news is we so need it. We have the water capacity. There's a lot of people who are talking flooding. Hey, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We've got capacity <laughs> to handle the water. There's nothing we can do about how much snow falls from the sky. So let's just take what we get. Yeah. I love it. Kevin Eubank, KSL Meteorologist, thanks so much for jumping on the line with us this morning and just giving us a heads up about tomorrow morning's commute. Oh, Kev, don't hang up. I just want to ask you real quick. So should I leave my house at 3.30 in the morning to make it uh, before the snow starts flying at 4 a.m.? Is, is that what you're looking at in terms of the No, you're models? an experienced driver. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard your stories forever. <laughs> just was... drive solid. Taylor's calling in sick, so what's That's it right. I was, I mean, by the time, look, I took Redwood Road 
all the way in this morning from the very south end of the valley because I just did not want to be on the freeway with all those daredevils this morning on my drive in. And by the time I got to the bridge at North Temple, I was ready to break down and cry, Kev. <laughs> well, let me tell you real quick because I know our time's up. Yep. Tomorrow morning, it's starting around 4 or 5 a.m. Today, it was ending around 6 or 7 a.m. So it'll be better tomorrow because you're going in at the very beginning of the event. All right, Kevin Eubank. We'll be watching you on KSL 5 TV, too. Thanks so much. Thanks. Boyd. <laughs> Thanks. Question next. From being a full-time student. I was injured. Straight ahead. Yeah. <laughs> next. Three minutes. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.